Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, we're in a series entitled Reconnect. Reconnect. Last week, I started with uh, Reconnect to God. Uh, where we all need to begin. And today I want to take the next progression of that step and reconnect with the church, with the church. You know, I spoke with a man at lunch one day this past week who, standing in line, said to me uh, after we were introduced, and he knew I was a pastor at this point, and He said, you know, my wife and I haven't been to church in well over a year since all this started. And I thought, you're pushing two now, (laughs) you know, just to make clear on the calendar, right? But he said, we're getting more church than ever. He said, we watch five sermons every week. He was so proud. My fear is that's a sentiment that's all too familiar, but listen to me, graciously I say, deplorably broken. And it is rooted in the lie of the evil one, Satan himself, to deceive Christians. Getting a sermon doesn't mean you've been to church. Now, I'll argue and lead out of the importance of a sermon for the church. Like, you will not hear me downplaying that. But church is so much more than a sermon. And I want to talk a little bit about that today. I've mentioned the trend recently of deconstructing the faith several times in the last few weeks. This morning, I plan to do a little deconstruction of my own. Uh, Not for me, but for us. And I, I, want, I want to set the sermon in its context this morning. Um, th- this is a sermon where I am laboring among the 99 for the one. We are laboring together for the one. And I mean by that when the New Testament speaks of Jesus as the great shepherd who leaves the 99 in search of the one. My aim this morning is not to look at those who are faithful and have remained faithful in the church and go, you haven't done enough. That's not true. I don't believe that at all. As a matter of fact, quite the opposite is true. I probably had half a dozen conversations with different people in the church this week about different situations where the church is caring for its own in very critical situations. That's so encouraging to a pastor But I want you to know we're laboring for the one. And there are many ones in our day and time. The church um, in our culture once held a central position. You know, it was located, the building for the church was located kind of in the center of the city. And it it was the center of culture in America in so many ways. This was a historical fact. And it's really, it's faded over the last 50 years or so likely do, and if you look at the decline of the church, it's almost directly portion, proportionate in, uh, um, uh, in proportion to the rise of affluence in our nation. Education's gone up, uh, standard of living has gone up, and in proportion 
so often the importance of the church in people's lives have gone down. I would argue that we can measure in a shorter period of time the decline locally in our own southwest Missouri region, if you will. I've lived here just over 22 years myself, and so I am right on the cusp of full hillbilly. Um, you, You know, it was in my heart before, and it was in my accent before I actually got into the geography of it. But I've got here, and I'm trying to immerse and perfect as best I can. Uh, For many reasons, our area though, was once a culture identified by its religious presence. Church on every other corner. And every other of those, uh, every other corners had a church on it too, right? When I first moved here, it was a very uh, churchy area, if you will. And, and, and um, I wouldn't say it's become something absolutely other, but it's not the same culture that it was when I moved here. And maybe in the last 10, 12, maybe as many as 15 years, I don't know, I'm not measuring this exactly, it's generalities I'm speaking of. Our culture has moved as has the entirety of our culture in America uh, uh, to a more secular presupposition about life. And so I'm not trying to make a value statement, but I'm simply saying that we as Christians are not unaffected by cultural movement. This is where we live. And and so often as I've become convinced in my very, very short few years of life, that spiritual perversion arises as much, if not more, from religious overindulgence as from the complete absence of it. We, We are spiritually created beings. We will not exist without worship. And if there is no religious presence, we'll find or create something to worship. The Bible teaches us this. And if we're the most religious of the religious, but we have to go one second longer without uh, being um, satisfied in that. We will take off the jewels of our life and cast them to someone and demand they make a golden calf out of it. Uh, The Bible teaches us this. And we can't believe that in some way we are insulated from it because of where we live. Now listen, that the church has lost prominence in the center of America life is not of great concern for me. I mourn it, but I don't fret it. If you can understand the difference there in those two words. What do I mourn? This is what I mourn about it. How so many who claim the name of Christ have removed the priority of church from their life. That I mourn deeply. I'm not concerned about whether the church will survive. That's never even a question in my mind. That is established uh, for me, convictionally, doctrinally, biblically. I have a confidence in God that not worried about that. But making sure people who sit in service every week are clear for their own lives, that's one of the great burdens of my life. See, our focus as a church is to lead people to be real Christ followers in life together. And so often when you live in a culture like we have lived in and still enjoy 
to a great extent, part of clarification is making sure that we've not entered or allowed to enter in some perversion or skewed perspective of the gospel, but that we're holding to the true biblical gospel doctrine as handed down through the ages to us. You see, the world doesn't make us Christians, and it can't unmake us as Christians. But it can give us every opportunity to walk away and to try and live as something other than who we truly are. I want to begin with some verses this morning that make a statement about who the church is. And then we're going to walk through chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 very briefly in each one this morning. Go with me to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to read three brief verses Verse 12 and 13 and verse 27. This is what Paul writes to the church at Corinth. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then skip over to verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. You, you see, the church is something together that we are not completely individually. That, that's, that's what Paul is getting at here. And at times I'm told, you know, pastor, I, I don't believe in church membership. Okay. At other times I'm told, you know, the word member as we use it in membership doesn't mean the same thing in these verses as we see it, as we use it in the church today. And to that sentiment, I would agree. You're exactly right. It doesn't mean the exact same. As a matter of fact, it means something far greater and much, much more than the way that we use it. But it is, to, it is toward that much more and far greater that we aim in our covenant membership and that we aim to lead people for the spiritual wellness and the wholeness that the gospel is forming in you. No, we we will not fully realize in this life and in this world all that God intends for us as members of one another. But our life is given to pursuing the reality of the truth that he holds for us here. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. In reconnecting with the church, I want you to understand that God saves people to live as the church. There is no salvation in the Christian faith that is absent of the church. He saves people to live as the church who are his people bearing a faithful witness in the world and serving his redemptive mission. Surely if we've learned anything over the last year and a half, we've learned this looks different at different times under different 
details or situations or circumstances. That's for sure. But the truth of the matter remains. God saves people to live as his church and we are to bear a faithful witness in the world as we serve his redemptive mission. I want to offer to you from these chapters four purposes today that compel us as Christians to reconnect with the church. And as I said, I'm preaching to the 99 about the one. I'm preaching to the 99 about the one. But listen to me, you may be the one sitting among us today. That's okay. You're welcome. I'm so thankful you're here and we want you to be with us. We want you to be among us. We invite you to become one of us or one with us might be a better way to say that. But listen, laboring for the one is not just the work of an exceptional few in the body. It's the pattern of our master It is the commission of every Christian. And I hope you hear that coming through today. And I hope you are encouraged and helped and strengthened by this message. Let's go to these four purposes. First of all, we'll begin in chapter 11. The first purpose I want to offer to you today is that Christians honor one another to recognize God's authority and our identity in Jesus. Christians honor one another to recognize God's authority and our identity in Jesus. Now, typically when you begin to talk about a Christian's identity, you don't go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because it seems like when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, man, you're into some like subsidiary stuff that's just argument laden. That's all it is. We're about to have a fight. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11, right? And he does acknowledge and address some things that I want us to look at this morning. I'm going to read verse 3, verses 7 to 9, and 11 and 12. And I'm going to read some particular parts of it, and I'll explain why in just a moment. Verse 3 says, Paul writes, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Verse 7, for a man, and it says, not to cover his head since he, but I'm going to take that part out for a moment for the point I'm making, and here's what I'm going to read of verse 7, for a man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Verse 8, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And then verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. You know, usually we come to these verses and we go, who wins? Are guys in charge or do girls rule, right? I mean, that's, that's what we begin to ask here. I mean, now we, we've lined up, we're facing, and we're ready to go to battle here. But I propose to you that Paul's not making his point to draw up battle lines today. 
That's not what he's trying to do. I I point to these verses not to remove the controversial portions, but for a specific purpose. In calling us to recommit, I'm aiming to show that, that, that Paul's teaching about the church is about something specific. You see, when Paul writes this letter, he's dealing with specific issues that are going on in a specific church in Corinth. And he's addressing the problems that they've already gotten themselves entangled into. And so what he's trying to do in making his point is he's digging his hands down into the mud of their problems. And he's trying to bring some some biblical wisdom in the application of it. But that's not the principal point of what he is saying. His point is far greater than just dealing with the immediate problems that they're having. And yet we like to get down into the mud and sling a little bit of it and make sure that other people have at least as much as we do on us, right? You see, Paul's teaching is foundational for our pattern of practice and for our understanding of the church. He is not measuring the value or the worth of people nor of gender. He is explaining the order of human relationships from God's design in creation and he's doing it as the foundation of his teaching. He's not trying to argue with people who don't agree with him. He's simply saying this is the way God created it and because of this, I want to say something else to you and it's the something else that we're after today. So if you like the mud and if you want to argue about these things, you'll have to call me later this week. I won't answer, but you're welcome to call. You see, Paul's point is this, is that Christians recognize we are people under God's authority. That's what verse 3 is all about. When, When the word head is used scripturally, he's speaking of the functional position of authority. This is not about hairstyles. It's not about dress. And and though his point surely does impact every aspect of how it is we present ourselves to one another, that's secondary to his main point. Honestly, if Paul were writing this to us today, I think he would have some cultural norms that he would step on our toes about, and it likely wouldn't even be the same as he's speaking of here. But the point is greater than just the way we dress, but he's speaking to the way we as Christians relate to one another, and he's saying this, that that Christians present themselves and they relate in a way that demonstrates our recognition that we, every one of us, lives under the authority of God. And then he goes on to follow this in the second half of the chapter and he rebukes the Corinthians because he says, not only do you not properly regard God's authority over you, you don't properly regard one another among you. He goes to the Lord's Supper and he says, one of the greatest ways that you run over God's authority is the way you run over the recognition of each other. He points out their selfish actions in in approaching the Lord's table. He says, you don't even consider one another, but you selfishly walk in, some of you gluttonously, and you just go right ahead and eat, and the rest of you are getting drunk. That's what he says. says, One goes hungry, another gets drunk. That's two ends of the spectrum. You see that? Now, 
Unless you think more highly of yourself because you've never gotten drunk at church, just wait a minute, okay? Like we can't excuse, well, it's not talking about me. I've never been drunk at church, so I don't, I don't need to listen to this. Yes, we all need to listen to this. Here's what Paul teaches. He's teaching us how Christians honor one another for God's glory by recognizing our common identity in Jesus. This is not about how some are more worthy than others, some rule over others, but how Jesus Christ is worthy above all and even him, even he submitted himself to the authority of the Father. And what the church is about is demonstrating the supremacy of God's authority and the unity of our identity in Christ by the way we honor one another and join together in worship of one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's saying that's what sets us apart, is that we don't entertain the same arguments that the world's entertaining because we don't hold our lives in the same way they do. You see, the essence of the church is manifested by how Christians honor one another to recognize the authority that we are under and the identity that we now have in Jesus Christ. It matters how we relate in the church. That's Paul's point. If you go back and look at the bookends, if you take that off, the books fall. All the teaching about everything else in the chapter falls apart. Why? Because he only gets through those things because he's trying to give them some practical wisdom to get their eyes up off of the mud that they've sunk themselves down into in their arguments. And he's saying this, look, you're letting it become about all these secondary details and I'm telling you this, that we recognize that we all live under God's authority and that we all have a new identity in Jesus, and this should define the way that we choose intentionally to relate to one another, to honor one another. I remember a few years back, I had the privilege of being with an impact partner in Tangier, Morocco, and he was telling me about the Christian church in Tangier, which through the ages has been exceptionally chaotic, it's been ruled and dominated and severely oppressed and persecuted like outwardly to the nth degree. And then at other times it's enjoyed kind of a, you might call it a calm peace, but only under the cover of secrecy. And he said the way that they disciple new believers who are Moroccan is that once they come to the point in believing the gospel where they are ready to become a Christian, they actually turn a bit and say to them, you need to reconsider this and think about what you're about to do. He says, not like we didn't want them to become Christians, but we didn't want them to become Christians for some secondary reason. Some, something that they think would become a benefit of being a Christian. And so it's not like we were trying to unchristianize them or undisciple them, but we would simply remind them of every challenge they're about to face. He said, because becoming a Christian in Morocco was not about getting a new label, it was about getting a new family. Because the moment that they claimed faith in Jesus Christ and were baptized, their family would disown them. They would lose their job. They would have nowhere to go except for the church. 
And the church would have to take care of them until they could get back on their feet and find another way to support their life. He said, so this Moroccan man came to him one day and told him, he said, I, I'm ready. I'm ready to become a Christian. I want to follow Jesus. And, and he had gone through all of the different um, uh, uh, reasons as to why he better reconsider his decision and make sure. And the man said, no, I'm, I'm ready to follow Jesus. And he said this, I, I have one question though. And the missionary said, well, what's your question? He said, how does he bring me back to life when I get baptized? And the missionary was like, what? I don't, I don't understand what you're asking. He said, well, you know, when you're baptized, you die with Christ. And then you're raised to new life. He said, I just want to know how. I'm not worried about the fact that he will. I just want to know how he brings me back to life. He said, in that instant, the missionary realized in his mind, this man was fully convinced that when he went under the water, he would physically die. And he had come to a point where he was okay with that. And he said, well, he said, you, you don't physically die. You, it's spiritually. You die with Christ by faith. So he explained it to him. And about a week later, they had a service where they baptized the man and he said, but I walked away from that conversation realizing how quickly we grab onto something and how quickly we buy in before we've ever counted the cost. And we're not really ready to die, if you will. You see, he was ready to identify himself with Jesus Christ and with his people. And he had fully resigned himself that that meant he was going to die. The first purpose that compels us to reconnect with the church is that Paul tells us we honor one another to recognize God's authority and our identity in Jesus Christ. Listen, when we come together, are we dying to self that we can live for Christ? Not just on a Sunday. But at any time when we encounter one another, when we think of one another and aim to minister to one another, that's what Paul is teaching here about what it means to be the church. The second reason that compels us to reconnect with the church, we're going to move to verse or chapter 12 rather and look at the verses I've already read. The second reason is this, Christians serve among the church to build unity and care for one another. Christians serve among the church to build unity and care for one another. So when we get to chapter 12, Paul has walked through the argument they're having, but he has to deal with another issue. Quite frankly, both books of Corinthians and probably the letter we don't have a copy of, he's just dealing with one problem after the other. Like, the Corinthian church is never where you go, you know, if we could only be like the Corinthians. <laughs> no, we're far too much like them already. <laughs> but we learn so much from them. In chapter 12, he talks about serving. Now, verse 24 and 25, listen to this. He says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. You see, in chapter 12, he's addressing spiritual gifts. 
One of Paul's, well, not one of, Paul's lengthiest teaching on spiritual gifts and how it is that they relate to the church. And he teaches extensively here just to explain the concept. I mean, he's, he's addressing the concept and he's teaching on the doctrine, but he's also making corrections by his teaching of how the Corinthians perceived spiritual gifts. You see, people were using gifts to bolster their standing among the church. Maybe you've heard of this. You've been... You've You've seen it. And, and they were using their gifts to make themselves look better in the eyes of other persons. And, and as we are all too familiar with, with our day and time, the crazier the manifestation of the gift, obviously the more spiritual the person. Well, surely nobody would act like an idiot in such a way if they weren't truly spiritual. So they must be off the charts I'm not going to do that. So obviously they're more spiritual than me. Now, granted, I'm, I'm poking at it a little bit, but this is what Paul is getting at. That you're manifesting your gifts among people, not for them, but for you. You're using serving other people as a way to get served by those same people because you like their applause. You like what they say about you. You like the way they think about you and Paul says this, it has nothing to do with God's purpose for gifts. The way that you as a church are using them. You see, what he says is that it is the Holy Spirit who apportions gifts to each one for God's purposes, not for self-edification. The problem was they had dialed in on one or two gifts that could be most easily perverted in their manifestation and everybody was trying to raise themselves in other people's eyes by those gifts. And the gifts were tongues. Now this doesn't dismiss the validity of tongues in the church. I'm not saying that, but I am saying this. The way that they were using them was skewed and perverted. They weren't using them to build unity by mutual ministry. They were using them to build self-exaltation, or as we would say today, their own platform among the people. You see, God gifts Christians by the Holy Spirit to serve among the church for building up and for caring for one another. Any spiritual gift that you come to recognize that you have is to you, but it is not for you. It's for the church. God gave it to you to build other people up. I recently had a conversation about the church and the person mentioned how good it was that person A, who was obviously weaker in certain instances, had person B, who was obviously stronger in those instances. And I paused for a moment and I thought to myself, I agree with you. And then I said this, you're right, it is good that person A has person B, but it's also equally good that person B has person A. Because a gift without a need never produces the ministry of grace. You see, this is why there are strong and weak people in the church. And this is why we are all strong and we are all weak in different instances. You're not one or the other. It's just a matter of when you are what you are. Every time we serve, we exercise the strength of our gift. And every time we're served, we demonstrate the need of our weakness. 
No one in the church is only strong or weak, but some show one at times to try and hide the other or use one to serve self. And listen, before we reach a flawed conclusion that it's our strength only that we defer to, let me speak a word here of rebuke that is often seen in the church. I say that when a Christian acts as a consumer only, taking from the church and never serving, they imprison themselves in their own weakness because they neglect the opportunity for the personal growth of themselves by failure to serve. You see, the church that properly stewards spiritual gifts is not impressed with the one who has the greatest manifestation but rather is grateful for the sacrifice made to exercise them for the good of others. As a church, that's what we need to celebrate. Gratitude and thankfulness for one another who are willing to serve so that each one of us can be built up. That's where our heart needs to be set. I learned this in one of my youth pastorate roles. I didn't know I was learning it at the time, but I was And I've often gone back to this in days since. Just before and immediately after Kristen and I were married, I served in a church in southwest Arkansas. I was a youth pastor. And there was a brother and a sister in that ministry. I'm going to call them Billy and Susie. Billy and Susie always came with an extremely high and very often a heavy demand of need. I mean, it was never convenient. You know what I'm saying? And, and I'm, well, I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to try to explain why I'm saying what I'm saying. They were very poor. They lived 10 to 12 miles outside of the community where we ministered. Their parents never bothered to bring them to church. Their parents never bothered to do anything for them. Matter of fact, I only met their parents, in three years, I only saw their parents once. And it was a very brief meeting with very unimpressionable conversation. More like a grunt. We often had to, uh, well, and, and Billy and Susie, if I'm honest, they just didn't fit well with the crowd. Like when they were there, they were always kind of, odd man out it just no matter what the crowd and they were with students they went to school with every day but even at school this is just kind of where they fit we often had to go pick them up and bring them to church or activities and if we couldn't we had to find somebody who would go get them and give them a ride you know it was so easy to look at them and to think man they really need our help really need our help. But in the years since, I've come to believe we were not there for them. They were there for us. I have no idea what has happened to them. I left and went to seminary before they graduated high school. Haven't heard from them since. Honestly, statistically, sociologically, it's probably not good. But their weakness 
had a more lasting effect for good and for godliness in me than I could have ever had in my phenomenal teaching (laughs) to help them. I hope you realize how sarcastic that word phenomenal was. The ministry they demanded of me was so frequently not what I was ready to give. But the small sacrifice required has often been a humbling reminder of how often I allow the very smallest minuscule things to interfere with ministry. Usually only wanting to default to personal preference or comfort instead of loving and serving another. You know, the next time you get frustrated at someone who always seems to be in need, stop for a moment and thank the Lord for a people among whom the needy can dwell. And in the midst of that, find grace and ministry for the greatness of our need. Ask the Lord to remind you of your own weakness and to remain faithful and joyful in the exercise of your strength. This is what Paul is saying. And if you find that you never have need among these people known as the church, Repent of that blindness and hardness of heart and invite gospel ministry into your life. You see, spiritual self-sufficiency is neither a biblical nor a gospel virtue and it has no place in the church. Let us not celebrate the greatest manifestations of gifts. Let us celebrate a gratitude that God is making us into a people where the neediest can come. That means me at my neediest hour and find grace for my soul. You see, when Paul describes what the church does by defining who she is, that we are Christians joined together That's what chapter 11 is about. It is set within the context of teaching on spiritual gifts. Why? Because the church that fails to serve one another will never truly know unity. Its members will only remain spiritually weak and immature, but they will be strong in self, lingering in every form of hurt and woundedness. The church needs the ministry of every Christian to be the church. And every Christian needs the church to minister to one another. By God's grace, never on our watch, life point, let it be true of us that we're a people that love the greatness of gifts manifested over the greatness of grace demonstrated in the lowliest of ministry activity. The third reason and purpose is that love excels above all. A love that excels above all. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. How we love to talk about love. Yet we get it so wrong so often. Paul's teaching on love is not in the middle of telling us what marriage is all about. It's not even in the middle of relational advice. It's in the middle of instruction on how the church must operate because he says that all of who we are and what we do is zero without love. That's how he begins. Verses one through three, he basically says this, love is greater than all of our highest religious activity. Greater than. And then he defines love both by what it is and what it is not. And that it will endure forever because it's the greatest. You know, most interesting is that his definition and his description cites one action after another, but never once mentions love the way we principally define it today as a feeling or emotion. It's just not there. Love is not something you feel. Love is something you do. I mean, according to 1 Corinthians 13. That, that's so radical, the world can't even entertain that in their ears. But it should stricken us as Christians to recognize how far away from a biblical understanding we've strayed and how hard we must labor to recapture it. Then Paul says this, that love is the maturing of a person, ultimately, so that they can know fully and be fully known. We use the word intimacy. That's what Paul is saying. If you go to Galatians chapter 4, to, be fully, or to fully know and to be fully known is also his definition of salvation. So what he's saying here is that, that love matures us into the image of Jesus Christ into a knowledge that is far surpasses ourself. You see, love is not its own principal expression, but it demands an action to be demonstrated and it matures the person expressing it as that person grows in their showing of it. To understand how love excels to mature a person, we, we need to include a verse from Peter. First Peter chapter four, verse eight says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Again, love is not by Peter expressed as an emotion or a feeling, but an action, the covering of sins. Often we incorrectly accept that this is to mean some manner of, well, we need to overlook it or we're just gonna love them instead. We need to dismiss it because we're gonna love them instead. We, we can just neglect at this moment, this time, this situation only. We won't do it again, but here, or simply ignoring it. I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't see anything. But nothing could be further from the truth according to Peter. That's actually the opposite of what he is saying. Love covers a multitude of sin, not when it ignores it, dismisses it neglected or overlooks it but rather when it confronts to address sin by the gospel like like love needs an action to be demonstrated that's what Peter is saying here and any child can ignore a sin any immaturity or childfulness can do that that's exactly what sin beckons us to do don't worry about it it's okay you won't do it anymore nobody saw it or nobody thought anything of it 
You see, what Christians do is we strive to excel above the world standard in love to the highest extent by applying the greatest love for the glory of God in every situation and circumstance. That's what the gospel compels us to do. You see, the church is a people among whom you practice your love to place it first and to excel above all as the greatest because we love one another. Love excels above all. That's a radical mental shift from what the world purports. But it holds the promise of God in redemption for us. The fourth is this, is to speak to build each other up. Chapter 14, he says this, pursue love and earnestly desire the greater gifts. He's going back and talking about chapter 12 and chapter 11 that he's already spoken of. But he comes back to speaking in tongues. He says this in verse two, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, again, let me just say this, because this is a whole other way that that we have argued about this. Paul's not saying stop speaking in tongues. Paul's saying stop speaking in tongues as the principal conversation of the church. Because you're only building up yourself with one another and you need to speak to build up each other. He's culminating his teaching by clarifying the central conversation among the church. Because the Corinthians were arguing over who could show their gift best and most, even celebrating the most outlandish manifestation. And the volume of instruction here, the volume that that all of chapter 14 is his application and his minutia of just trying to go, you know, this and this and this and this and because he's trying to lay out a way in which it is valid, but he's saying in everything I'm teaching you, it's not valid among you. And the volume of instruction that he includes teaches us so much about the topics, both of tongues and of prophecy, because we've got a lot of correction to do. But that is not Paul's main point here. That's not his main point. Rather, he's only validating how skewed their understanding of their religious practice had become. He's simply saying the same thing he's been saying, that Christians never exercise spiritual gifts among the church to exalt self, but rather to exhort and to edify and to encourage one another. Every word that utters forth from your mouth among this people is for the others. You see, the defining conversation for Christians among the church, he says is this, it is to prophesy to build each other up. And then he's got to correct the understanding of what prophesy is all about. Because again, the greater and the wackier the manifestation, the more they applaud it. And Paul went, no, no, no. Your prophecy can be when you come through the front door and encounter the first person you meet. Prophecy is not a conjured up telling of the unknown. It is the faithful, consistent, regular, love-lavished, forth-telling reminder of every promise that God has already said yes to in Jesus Christ. And it is given to strengthen one another in heart to believe and obey the commands of Christ in the daily walk of life. The question comes to us in regards to this fourth reason. Who 
are we speaking to today to build up in Jesus? Christians need the church to fulfill their faithfulness in following Jesus. And the church needs Christians who are following Jesus to fulfill their mission. If I'm honest with you, there are people that I want to see every time I walk on this campus because I know they're going to have a word that's going to strengthen my heart just for the moment. And I know I need it. You know, last week I asked if you'd considered what effect this season had had on you and your family. And I say to you this, that the greatest defense against slow motion conditioning away from the church, away from Christ ultimately, is the regular faithful participation in the personal disciplines of the faith and the regular participation in the local church. It's just, just like Monday follows Sunday and Tuesday the day after that. This is the way we live our life. You know, I, I'm thankful for a church that genuinely loves to serve one another. I'm thankful that the testimony I, I get to share with other pastors so often is one that I'm humbled by when I tell them, you know, we're, we're doing pretty well considering all things for where we are as a church. And I don't mean to brag, but if two pastors are sharing about their situations, I get to say, God... It's doing some great things and it's showing itself in the simplest ways among our people. But friends, I can't escape the heavy reality of our work in the church, specifically with this message today. Here I stand pleading with people. To commit to gathering with other saints as the body of believers. All the while, last week, it was reported that Christian leaders received a note from the Taliban that they knew who they were and they would take their life from them in the next couple of weeks. And I tell you, I don't think they ran to church that next Sunday and said, recant, get out of here, we're going to all die. I think they said what Christians have said through the ages. Hold fast. Christ will be faithful. Hold the line. 